This podcast is supported by Red Energy, powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Red is a hundred percent Australian owned and local. Phone one three one eight zero six. Is he a big sook or is he a genuine victim here? My feeling is that Malcolm, who is clearly very intelligent and has very many strong traits, but I think he has various narcissistic traits. It's beyond a scandal, actually, because whoever was the pass-arounder person is potentially in breach of the law. We're talking about our dreams. This is a bad sign. The one I'm having at the moment is that I can do the splits. Wow. Freud would have a bit to say about that, I think. Although it is a comedy, it's very much a black comedy, but it is, oh, it's bloody hysterical and it's got some great lines and I would thoroughly recommend it. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Thanks to Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. And welcome everyone back to Corona Country. Yes, it's episode 124 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with my dear friend and fellow podcaster of, gee, Corey, it must be two or three years now. Corey Perkin, how are you going? It does feel like a long time, much longer in the last couple of months, Caro, since we've been isolated, but it's lovely to see you on the screen. We did feel last week probably was our last together session. We felt that really we should be practicing what we preached and we decided to isolate. So I miss you, my friend. I miss you too, Corrie, but we can make up for it online. And um, now you'll go through that thing that I do, that every time you talk on the phone, you've got to make sure you're not doing something that people don't want to see because you never know whether you're visual or not. Now, Corrie, let's kick off with an apology. I need to apologise to Tony Wilson because I wasn't deliberately being mean about his wonderful book that tells the story, reenacts all the stories and backstories from the 1989 grand final between Hawthorne and Geelong. I was just saying I was getting a bit sick of nostalgia, particularly in the sports pages. And if I heard one more anecdote from that grand final, I'd spew up. But I didn't mean it in that mean way. And in fact, there is so much in this book that is completely wonderful. It was a dig at nostalgia and nothing else. And um, Jeff Slattery being his publisher, let me know that, Corrie, in no uncertain terms. Honestly, does Jeff Slattery have nothing better to do if he sends one more recipe through to you or I? It actually, it is really helpful. And I have to say, I was saving this for the GLT segment, Cara, but I'm going to pop it in here. Jeff Slattery, uh, follow him on Instagram. He's starting to do recipes or re reconnect with old recipes. He used to, um, I think his book was Simple Flavours from memory back in the early 90s. It was. And it he's was. posting them the on forward. Instagram. So if anybody wants a few free recipes, go into Jeff Slattery's um, account. It's fabulous. Corrie, we've got a special guest today, but before we get to him, can we also apologise to Judy from Essendon or, in fact, to all the teachers who are dealing with not homeschooling because homeschooling is where parents develop a program for their own children. Let's face it, we're all calling it homeschooling. They're call, calling it homeschooling on the radio, um, but the teachers are getting a bit sick of it. So Judy from Essendon, we hear you and we love your positive comments about and a, a, uh, a little, podcast. Um, a little apology, Caro, from Virginia underscore reads. 
You may recall I mentioned the wonderful podcast with India Hicks interviewing her mother. Well, Virginia reminds us that, in fact, she had recommended this to our potties a few months ago, and we actually read out her message. So just look, all I can say is early Alzheimer's, I'm not sure, but I'm really sorry I didn't mention that. But it is worth uh, worth listening to. I totally agree. And uh, Suzanne Lynch via Facebook wants to tell us that trying to use a word to describe us potties, lovely is because um, lovely comes to her mind. It's warm and comforting, and that's how we make her feel. That is really lovely. Thank you, Suzanne. Bridget Nile, thanks for your tip about opening those flipping plastic bags at the fruit shop when you're struggling with your gloves. Just hold the, hold the don't bite it, at, as I did last week. Hold the top of the bag between your thumb and middle finger. Click or snap your fingers, voila. That works, Corrie, if you Rather can snap your rubbing. fingers. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I can't click my fingers, so it's no good for me. And Jane Miller on Insta, Corrie, tells you that Valhalla Murders does have a subtitle option on Netflix. Now, Carol, I'm very interested. Robbie Baxter on Instagram said that she was also uh, reading American Dirt and loving it. And then she said, Carol, we must have a game of group on IBBO. Now, what is IBBO? My new addiction, Corrie, my new addiction. And um, I think our guest, or at least our guest partner, might have discovered it as well, because um, we'll talk to him about that in a moment. But Bridge Online is my new escape, and boy, is it fun. I did play with Robbie Baxter. I didn't do very well because she's a very good player, but we had a ball. So that is my new guilty pleasure. Now, before wonder, we go to our I guest, Corrie... this is all over, whether people will just stop going out and getting dressed up and meeting for bridge days they'll just be at home with in their trekkie pants and ugg boots saying oh yeah let's play bridge today and getting up a crowd are you kidding i got dressed up this morning to walk to the market with my husband i think you have to keep standards up corrie corrie how's your april challenge going well as as i said last week i've put the children's book to bed for another month caro but i have my second part of my challenge cooking out of the new phalliston cookbook has been a triumph on two different uh, with two different recipes this week. The first one, in fact, I was uh, having a bit of messaging with our friend Tanya, the wonderful cook, who's become very excited about this recipe. It's just simply called prawn and tomato stew. But the trick to it, Carol, is the number of herbs uh, and spices that you use with this. It was probably one of the top five things I have ever cooked in my life. I'm obsessed. I can't wait to cook the next lot. And then the second recipe I did, uh, which I'm having trouble actually reading its official title here, roasted aubergines, feta yogurt, chili and pistachio. It was absolutely to die for. You could have it as a main course if you didn't want to just – we had it as an aside with lamb, but you could have it on its own. Vegetarians would love this dish. What about your challenges? Well, my challenge was to start running. I'm doing a little bit of running every day and my step average for the month of April is 12,000. So beat that oh, every day. very good. <laughs> no, I'm Look, feeling, I'm feeling good. 12,000 steps because, a day. Yep, I'm just every day has to be a walk of at least an hour and a half and a bit of running, as you know, because um, I did walk with you the other day and I ran up the hill because you were early. And, um, but I try and do it, run at least a K or two. So I'm getting better. I'm getting better. And anyway, Corrie, let's get down to business. Yes, Carol, let's. So I would like to introduce uh, a dear friend of mine, probably a friend of 20 years or more, I think, Dr. Nick, 
Uh, he's a member of my history club. He also comes along to the bookshops, book clubs. He is a keen golfer. Uh, he is a father of three grown-up children. And more particularly, he is a respected Melbourne psychiatrist. And for a whole host of reasons, the above mentioned and others, we are delighted, Nick, to have you here with us today. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Corrie and Caro. Thank you very much for inviting me here. I've heard a few of your podcasts on the way down to the beach when my wife plays them, and I've always enjoyed them. And you girls seem to have so much fun. I'm very happy to be here. So thank you. Once, you once said to me you were quite envious, Nick. You'd like to be here with us, and now you are. Now I am. Yes, I'm very excited. Carol and I have at times had a bit of fun and tried to look at the light side of this, but there is also a, a much darker side, which is not only the physical health of people, but their mental health. And we were very keen to ask your views about this. Um, I think what concerns me the most is what should we be looking for in ourselves if we're starting to feel a bit depressed and very flat? And what do we look for in others? Well, I think you're right that there are huge psychological impact of what we're doing. And I, I'm, I think it's just starting to be talked about in the press, but I don't think there's been enough emphasis on this. And, and there are two particular aspects that the social isolation that's enforced has a big impact on many people, especially those who get most of their social contact through work. Then if they're stuck at home, they can often feel very much on their own. And I'm already seeing the impact of this on patients. I have one woman who's 80 and generally very well, but was severely depressed earlier in the year and needed to come into hospital for a few weeks and was very well and got back, did very well, got back to her normal life. And she doesn't have a lot of friends or family, but she goes out regularly to German class every week and she goes shopping and interacts with all her storekeepers. And just in the last three weeks, that's all shut down. And I've just seen her this morning and she's got severely wor worse and I'm having to admit her back into hospital. So that is the real risk that we're seeing. And it was interesting that the Melbourne Institute, their uh, applied economic and social research arm, who are attached to Melbourne University released a survey last year, where they, last week, where they interviewed 1,200 people and found 20% of the people said they'd been depressed for the previous week almost all the time or all the time. And they're big figures. Normally, we would expect to see about 6 or 7% of people saying they were depressed at any one time. So I think there's already quite a big impact of what's going on. So, Nick, what do you say... Um, this constant tug-of-war argument that we're having at the moment, and a lot of people are saying it to me, the, the rules have to be slackened off a bit soon. We have to think about people's mental health. You know, we might be um, stopping incidents of corona, but there is going to be a much larger impact and we're going to start seeing more suicides, etc. How, how, do you, how do you sort of navigate that tug-of-war? I think it's a very difficult question and, and people have different views, but certainly there is a risk of suicide and we know that at times of drought, when farmers are put under financial stress, there's an increased risk of suicide then. And I do think we have to be careful about wanting to prevent all deaths from coronavirus. There, there's this sort of idea that if you talk about this, you're being callous. but. 
one to two thousand people die of ordinary flu every year and yet we don't say that we should isolate everyone for four months every year a thousand people die of car accidents we don't suggest the speed limit is 10 kilometers because it would be too inconvenient for society so it's not as though we're obsessed with eliminating every death that we could because you can't actually live life if you do that so i think there has to be some balance and i do think now that the figures are going down to one or so a day we could um start to think about relaxing the restrictions nick what do you what's your view about uh, the behavior early on of our community the supermarket fights i know a lot of that was overplayed but there was a run on toilet paper there was a run on hand sanitizer you couldn't buy flour for love or money why does that happen well i think these kind of group or community panics occur at times of extreme stress and i think in those early days we were getting videos from italy showing the horrendous scenes there and i think people just got very anxious and when people are anxious i don't think they think rationally and it's a bit contagious you see one person hoarding and then you sort of worry well maybe there won't be anything left and it just gets out of control but i think it's much more sensible now and i think i think australia should be very proud of its response really i mean what we've done compared to the early predictions of where the possible rates of infection and what's actually happened we're we're on the figures the third lowest rate in the world which is pretty admirable i think in a, in a few months it suggests to me that aussies just love hanging around in their tracksuit and their ug boots sitting at home doing very little <laughs> Corey, i think you're projecting your own desires onto the australian population i'm not sure that's quite fair to all of them you and i were talking about this fine line between uh people complying and as the situation becomes less uh concerning um that people will start to take the law into their own hands. And you, sh you told me an example of someone you knew who was pulled over by the police and how that in itself can cause anxiety and people going over the, the edge. How are we going to sort of remain compliant? Because it's not really in our nature to always be uh, nanny state watched like this. I think people are compliant when they see the laws being enforced in reasonable ways for rational purposes. And I think that we've generally, as a population, been very good. But I think people do get upset when they see the police acting in an officious manner when someone maybe has been running and then decides to sit down on a park bench, that they're being treated as though they're a criminal. And I think that's just quite unwarranted in that it causes people then to have a lack of respect for the police. And I think that's the kind of issue that then leads people to start breaking the rules if they think it's being irrationally enforced. Nick, I just wondered if you can give us a quick, uh, a really quick summary, probably a little superficial, I guess, but what, what would be the kind of pattern of behaviour or feelings that we might be having if our anxiety and our depression about this was increasing? Well, I think, first of all, with the anxiety, people would notice themselves becoming more intolerant and that would cause increasing tension at home and that's clearly a risk. The New South Wales Health Minister said last week that there had been a 70% increase in the number of people looking up domestic abuse on Google. Now, that hasn't been translated. We haven't seen any figures about whether it's actually translating into actual harm, but that's a very significant figure, people just looking that up. So I think when people get anxious and depressed, they often take it out on the person they're living with. 
for yourself, I think it's a kind of loss of morale and not wanting to do anything. And, you know, that's the early sign of depression, I think, is not being bothered. So, you know, if I had one sort of word of advice about dealing with this, I think that people really would help themselves if they had some kind of routine so they were doing things every day not all day but they just had a few targets today that they had something to do which gave some structure to their life because i think that helps people become less anxious and less depressed and nick what's fascinated me has been the occasional blame game so you know in in terms of young afl footballers it's um oh they don't have a structure anymore and they're going out and driving drunk. I mean, that's a very small sample size that we've seen. There's um, more locally in Melbourne, there was the group who went to Aspen and one or two who didn't behave badly when they came home. The person who infected everyone in the first place, the Ruby Princess, even the Chinese, you know, the Chinese markets. The, the, the resentment and finger pointing at times has been horrifying to me. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's what people do at the time of crisis. They look for someone to blame, a scapegoat. And I think we have to be careful about pointing the finger irrationally. I mean, there was a whole thing about the people who went to Aspen skiing. And, you know, for most of them, they've just gone away blamelessly, had a holiday and come back into this maelstrom. And, and I think some of them didn't quite know what was going on. I mean, I think there's a difference between uh, blamelessly causing an infection to go, uh, spreading the infection to someone who knowingly having the virus goes out when they should be isolated. I think they, I think it's legitimate to, to blame someone who's doing that. Oh, look, it's um, we could talk about this forever, but Corey, we might move on to the latest literary scandal, which has got your name all over it. And Nick, I reckon you've um, probably got some thoughts on this as well. So Malcolm Turnbull's biography was released over the weekend. It certainly was released in The Age in a couple of interesting, um, very big um, articles and also a big interview with the Fairfax chief uh, political reporter. There was an embargo and copies were passed around among the cabinet, Corrie. Sum it yeah, up. Yeah, it, it's been a, it's been a, a real... Uh, it has been a real... It's beyond a scandal, actually, because uh, whoever was the uh, the pass around a person to various cabinet ministers and cabinet ministers' offices is potentially in breach of the law. Caro, as booksellers, you sign an embargo agreement. And sometimes I make fun of this, but they are actually there for a real purpose, a significant purpose. What it means is that a book, uh, usually what happens with a book such as this, and this has happened, the publishers, Hardy Grant, did a deal with Fairfax. Uh, Fairfax paid money for the extract, and that is a commercial agreement. As booksellers, when we sign a form saying we agree to the embargo, we then become part of that agreement. We will honour it. And our honouring is that although we will receive our 20 or 50 or 150 books of Malcolm Turnbull's A Bigger Picture, we all agree not to sell it until a particular time, which was supposed to be Monday morning this week. On Friday afternoon, I got a call from someone connected with the publisher saying that the Australian had broken the embargo, that they had published it, parts of it in their paper, and they had received, the Australian had received this uh, extract from these illegal 
ebooks that were floating around. So, of course, you can imagine Hardy Grant were furious about this because, of course, this is a weekend when you're wanting to create anticipation and excitement. And Malcolm Turnbull, of course, was on 7.30 with lease sales on Monday nights. So all everything was heading toward a really big, strong day of sales on the Monday and all of us, and then, of course, people are reading it. Are they going to actually go out and bother buying the book? So our thing was that um, we just we we contacted the publisher and said, may we start selling? And they said, you know what? Absolutely, go for it. So we basically sold 45 copies on Saturday and, and Monday. We've sold out. We've ordered another 50. It's sold out around the country. 20,000 copies have been sold and they're doing another reprint. The desire to read Malcolm Turnbull's story is extraordinary, but, you know, this will go further. And, in fact, the publishers have referred the matter to the federal police. So we'll wait and see. But, Nick, I was really interested in your thoughts about Malcolm Turnbull. Caro and I were sort of discussing this at one point. And, and I did watch the terrific interview he did on Monday with Lee Sales. But I wondered whether you thought... Malcolm Turnbull is a man with particularly grievances that he may never overcome, a bit like Paul Keating. Is he a big sook or is he a genuine victim here? Well, Corrie, it's very hard to sort of make judgments of someone you haven't met and don't know, but I tend to think that, and I watched that interview with Lee Sales as well, and I've also read some of the extracts, my feeling is that Malcolm, who is clearly very intelligent and has very many strong traits, he's hardworking, he's committed to various causes, but I think he has various narcissistic traits that I think make it difficult for him to look at his own role in what happens to him. And, and my opinion of the interview with Lee Sales was that he saw everyone else's wanting power without sort of having commitment. He wanted to sell everyone else as being disloyal but not him. And he, he didn't seem to entertain the idea that maybe people didn't like his politics in the end. You know, I think the fact that he is proud of the, the fact that he put a lot of money into sponsoring the formation of the Guardian newspaper in Australia, which is a very left-wing journal, I don't think there'd be many Liberal colleagues at all who would look at things the way The Guardian does. And if Malcolm think that's reasonable, I think his colleagues probably genuinely didn't think he was a Liberal in the mould they wanted. Now, he blames the right-wing cabal and the, Fifth and the News Corps and Rupert Murdoch, but I'm not sure that's fair. I think he has to take some responsibility, and I think he avoided doing that. It's really unfortunate timing, isn't it, that... This has come out at a time when whatever we think of the current leadership, we really need our leaders to lead and not be distracted. And there is a much big, there is actually a much bigger picture now than Malcolm's bigger picture. And to me, it just came across as, look, it's an interesting, I love reading all the, I mean, it's like reading about Elizabethan England, you know, some of the behind the scenes backstabbing and the treachery that goes on and his thoughts on Corman and, and, um, Scott Morrison's behaviour, but I don't think anyone would want to be hearing that about a, a Prime Minister who is currently trying to steer Australia out of the greatest crisis we have faced, certainly in my lifetime, Nick. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think it is disappointing for him and the publishers because I think it does seem a bit petty, a lot of that stuff, when we're facing such a national catastrophe with 
the economic, not only the medical costs, but the economic costs that are down the track. And, and I think that people don't want to hear this kind of stuff at the moment, or they're well, less likely to want to hear I, it. I disagree with you there because the people who are coming into the shop, a lot of them are working from home. A lot of them are perhaps not employed. And so they are really isolated at home. And now in a funny kind of way more than ever, they, they have the time and the, I suppose, uh, intellectual mindset that they can take on a memoir like this and dissect it in a way that is meaningful. Yes, you're probably right, yeah. Book sales and commercially fantastic, but I'm not sure it's what we need as a nation at the moment. Corrie, a few years ago, um, you remember when Jason Ackermanis wrote his, it was a, a memoir, it was an autobiography that was coming out. Hardy Grant also published it. And the bull, it left the Bulldogs under a blaze of controversy and he behaved really badly, the, bull, the Brisbane Premiership champion. And um, I got home from work one Sunday from the footy and there was a, a manuscript at my front door and it was the entire manuscript. And I remember I'd been doing pre-game for 3AW and I had, with deadlines and everything, I basically had about three or four hours to write a, a piece and well, who basically was, who break... Who was your deep throat? Are you going to tell us? Well, they deliberately... I was told by someone that a book would appear at my door, but no, they never told me because then had I been questioned, there's that poor unfortunate cabinet minister who appeared on the Insiders on Sunday when she said she'd received the um, the e-copy will be questioned. I can't tell you who sent it to me. I don't, it, was, it literally fell off the back of a truck, Corrie. And, um, oh, they always it was, do, um, Carol. Isn't that funny the way that happens? That truck, it, I tell you what, that truck's got a lot to answer for. Can anyway, I, look and, and, and Corrie, can I just mention one thing? This is a little bit out of order, but you were talking about people needing distractions and so on. And I just think we talked a little bit about the downside of the isolation that's coming on. But there, I think it is fantastic the way that we're all using Zoom, if you've got the internet and electronic equipment, and bridge-based, which is the thing that mystified you, which is a really good way of communicating with other people. I think people are being very innovative in finding ways to not, not be isolated. And I wanted to mention one in particular that I think is very interesting, and I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called an app called Caribou. Have you heard of that? No, Caribou, so this is, no. This is very good, and I think that's why I wanted to mention it. It's an app that you can download on a smartphone or iPad and your grandchildren or your children can download it and you can read a book with your grandchild or you can draw with them in real time or colour in. It's got all these activities and books on it. And for grandparents who are not seeing their grandchildren, it gives you a very good way of interacting with them. And I have grandchildren in America, so it's been you know, very good that we can, say, read a book with our granddaughter. That is a great tip, and I'm going to follow that with my Ballarat mob. Nick, I just wanted to say my daughter in Amsterdam has put us all on a, a running and walking app, so we all know where each other are running and walking, even, at my, even though it might be in different time zones. So you're right, it, it's not great for the really, really, really elderly who never got over, who never really got involved in um, the, the modern world of the WWW, but... Um, Gee, it's a it's a godsend at the moment. You're right. It really works well. Carol, you have a crush for Red Energy, Corey. I have a crush for our wonderful sponsor. Call one three one eight zero six for Real Aussie Energy, and you can talk to their Melbourne-based team today. Now, Corey, don't get cross, Nick. Um, 
you probably don't know this, but Corrie gets annoyed when I have football crushes, particularly <laughs> when they involve the Richmond Football Club. But Corrie, I've done it again. Peggy O'Neill, who had a birthday on the weekend, and a lot of high-profile women in sport, including our friends from the Outer Sanctum, actually did a, I think it was a Zoom happy birthday to Peggy. She has behaved with such dignity and generosity and pathos, in my view, to Richmond members who can't necessarily afford to keep up their memberships. And I've read a lot of the letters to members from club presidents, including yours, Corrie, Jeff Kennett. I heard Eddie Maguire a few weeks ago on Channel 9, you know, spark fears of a run on footy clubs. And I mean, I think they would do the right thing, Collingwood, by their members if they were genuinely struggling. But the way Peggy framed her communique to members, and Richmond do have a lot of members, in terms of getting in touch with the club if they had any issues at all, and Richmond would help them and clearly give their money back. I just want to say, Peggy O'Neill, Yet again, you've come up trumps and you are my crush of the week and a lot of other club CEOs and presidents. I can't get cross with that. You know, I love Peggy. I love her, love her, love her. She just just barracks for the wrong side, that's all. But um, And and I hope that when we have a gathering again, if we're ever allowed to do that, that Peggy will come back and be a special guest because wasn't she a hit at our Christmas party a few months ago? Barracks for the wrong side. She's a two-time premiership president. She's more than a barracker, Corrie, but yes, I quite agree. Now, uh, we'll move on again for Red Energy to BSF. And Nick, uh, we need you to come in here. Just incidentally, Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, is also one of the, is obviously an Australian leader in renewable energy. And I'm going to be talking about them again and again. Now, Nick, I've read and spoken about this book, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on Middle England by Jonathan Coe. Well, Carol, I thought this was a a great book. And I thought what was interesting was, first of all, it was not about grand characters or very people going through awful tragedies or crises. It was what its title suggests. It was about ordinary people in the middle classes in England tackling with their lives. And in particular, it was focused on the present time and some of the issues that are relevant, such as in England, Brexit, but racism, positive discrimination, transsexualism, politically correct, political correctness. And I just thought it was a very honest and, and I don't like using the words nice, but I think nice conveys the sense that this was just a measured way of how ordinary people go through their lives tackling some of these issues and when they're confronted with them and how they react to them. And um Yeah, I just uh, enjoyed reading it. It was well written. And I thought that the two main characters, uh, the girl Sophie, who was an an arts lecturer, and her uncle, who was an unpublished writer, were just very engaging characters. And I thought it was a very enjoyable read. And Nick, why did you have to read that book? Would you like to share with the group? I would like to share with the group. I read that because I'm a member of one of Corrie's books clubs and she has excellent choices of books most mostly I agree with but not always and I've enjoyed my book clubs that Corrie runs with an iron fist and that was one of the books that I enjoyed. And what happened the other night when our book clubs had a Zoom meeting Nick? Well I mistook I thought was under the impression there was a lottery to be asked to join the Zoom meeting and I, I didn't get an email so I didn't join and I was sorry about missing that. You were waiting for you were waiting for a personal invitation. Picked up his bat and ball and went home. (laughs) I love that book too, Nick, and I think it'd be a great book to read at the moment. I mean, the 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 stuff 
the long-term sort of predictions about Brexit, except, you know, sort of very... There was a bit of... There was a, for, a foreboding na uh, nature of it, but it was also... It ended with such great optimism. I think it'd be a good course, one to read yeah. at the moment. It's a great ending, wasn't it? A very nice ending, yeah. Carol, you now, have Corey's... some recipes for... Uh, oh, sorry, we're doing screen first. My apologies. I want to talk about a film that I caught, uh, but why don't you go first? Okay, well, I, I've, I also caught a film, an old film, that I've always wanted to see and never have, and that's what we're doing at the moment, isn't it, if we've got Netflix or one of those many apps on our television. I, I finally watched Whitnail and I. Uh, this was a film made in the late 80s. It was Richard E. Grant's first f film. He's Whitnail. Paul McGann is the character whose name you never actually quite pick up in the film, but he's the I. It's based, I think, on... It, it's set in 1969, and it has it, it has um, some sort of roots in the old English kitchen sink drama. It is basically the story of two reprobate drunks, particularly Whitnail, um, out-of-work actors living in Camden Town in London in 1969, um, the action moves to a very dismal country home owned by Whitnell's rather flamboyantly gay Uncle Monty, played by Richard Griffiths. Corrie, you remember him from Pie in the Sky. He Jimmy is brilliant. It, is, it, it became a cult classic. It didn't do very well at the time. It is based on the director and writer's early experiences, I think, as a down-and-outer in London in the late 60s. Whitnell is one of the great film characters. Richard E. Grant is sublime in the role and although it is a comedy it's very much a black comedy but it is oh, it's bloody hysterical and it's got some great lines and i would thoroughly recommend it well i, you, what about you, I follow uh, i don't know whether you do but i follow richard e grant on instagram and he is forever quoting passages from that film clearly it is the of, of all his the work that he's done over the years he has huge affection for that movie there's no doubt now, you, Carol, you finally caught Carol, up with some lion. Yes. Well, I just wanted to confess to you both and to our listeners that, in fact, I have seen a Nicole Kidman movie that I not only thoroughly enjoyed, but I thought that she played an extraordinary role and full bouquet to her. This is Lion, which came out in 2016, Nick and Caro, and it is the biographical film, the true story of Saru Brali, a Tasmanian um, man who was born in India. He was tragically separated from his brother. Uh, they were uh, from a very, very poor, low-caste family, and they were hunting and gathering food and morsels, and they were separated. And poor little Saru, who I think was six or seven, um, was separated from his older brother, ended up on a train that took him hundreds of kilometres from his family village. When he disembarked from the train, he had no idea where he was. And in fact, he was in Calcutta, which in itself would be overwhelming at any age. But at the age of five, when you have no idea where you've come from, you can't speak the language of the area into which you've arrived. It was devastating. And, of course, he ends up um, being adopted by a Tasmanian couple who are played by uh, in, who were played by Nicole Kidman and David Wenham from uh, who used to be Diver Dan in Sea Change. I loved this movie, Caro. I cried my eyes out. The editing of the film 
the footage around India is beautiful. And the main character, Saru, is played most eloquently and gently by Dev Patel, who you'll remember from uh, the Marigold Hotel. He's a terrific actor, and I thought this was an exceptional film, a really good one for our times now. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, no, I loved it. What about the use of Google search? Doesn't that? Well, it's that was quite great. How he reconnected with his family just by following Google and trying to go back into his five-year-old mind, the streets and the villages. Great film, highly recommend. I thought highly it was recommend. also a, a great film, one Netflix series that I think is really worth watching. It's one of the best I've seen and it's not at all violent or too difficult to understand. It's called Unorthodox. Yes, and it's great. I watched it and, on the weekend, Nick. Yeah. Nick, Nick, it was my recommendation two weeks ago. Oh, it's fabulous, sorry. isn't it? Yes, but anyway, wasn't it great? I loved yeah. it. Yeah. And they also had a great documentary on making the series afterwards, which was really worth watching. Yeah, no, I, I agree, Unorthodox. And, Carol, I meant to say that as well. I picked up your tip from a couple of weeks ago, watched all four episodes back-to-back the other night, and... Um, it was just great. So thanks for that tip. Wasn't it awful, though, the way, you know, that women, if you didn't want to just stay at home and breed, basically, there was no role for women at all in that society. You had to feel sorry for that young woman just being trapped in this claustrophobic space with, with no sense that there was any future for her at all except to breed. I thought it was just brilliantly portrayed. And the complete mystery around her sexuality. She just had absolutely no idea what was going on. There's also now an interview I think you can get online or on YouTube, Nick, with the author of the original book and a bit about her her own experiences, which are sort of based on the, you know, the, the yeah. series is based on that. No, I'm, I'm glad everyone enjoyed that. And um, I recommend it to Unorthodox on Netflix. Now, I'm not going to spend too long on my recipe, Corey, but I did make a triumph of a risotto on Sunday night. There's very little to say except that I, um, I suppose I invoked the memory of um, the great cooking skills of our friend Andrew Seckel and risotto is really everything you've got with some good stock and a really good quality of rice and a cup of white wine but um, asparagus and prosciutto make the most fabulous risotto. Throw in the asparagus tips when the rice is about three quarters cooked Fry up the, sorry, the, the spears, fry up the tips and add them on the top when you serve it up with crispy prosciutto on top of that. Stir in a bit of uh, grated parmesan cheese and black pepper and that is absolutely beautiful. Very easy. They're, just they're really good dark companions, the old asparagus and prosciutto. They're, one of my favourite pass-arounds in spring-summer is the uh, asparagus spear with a little bit of goat's cheese and then you wrap it around with the prosciutto. That's pretty yummy too. Sounds delicious and throw in a bit of basil as well and Bob's your uncle. Now, Corrie, for Red Energy, you're grumpy. Well, I was actually going to pass on my grumpy to Nick because I don't feel particularly grumpy this week. I'm very calm this week. Nick, are you grumpy about anything? I don't get grumpy, Corrie, as a psychiatrist. I have to stay calm for my patients and always level-headed. No, I feel a bit like you, really. I mean, I think we're lucky, those of us who um, do have friends and understand how to use technology, that we can make the most of this sort of enforced isolation. So I suppose if I was irritated about something, it's just 
as you mentioned, this friend of mine pulled over by the police for doing nothing. And I think it's the officiousness of the police, I think, that doesn't do them or the community any favours at all. And that irritates me. Kathy, are you grumpy about anything, Caro? Oh, well, I suppose I'm sure I can find something. Let me think about it, Corrie. I I tell you, I know I said this about Easter, but as we head towards Anzac Day, there is so much about Anzac Day I absolutely love. And again, I say how much I miss the rituals of... Obviously, I love going to the football on Anzac Day. It's one of the great occasions. It doesn't involve my team, but it's one of the great days. It really is a wonderful day on the footy calendar. I don't always go to the shrine, but I have been on many occasions, all down um, in our little seaside hamlet to the Anzac ceremony there. None of that will happen this year, and I'm really sad about that. I'm also sad that I won't be getting together with friends because it's one of my favourite public holidays. And I think it's absolutely beautiful that they're going to blow a bugle in the middle of the MCG, despite the fact that there will be no game. I think that's going to be quite poignant. Well, we definitely have to be partaking of our Anzac Day rituals, uh, lest we forget, I say. Six quick questions. Again, thank you to Red Energy, our sponsor, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas. And my first question is to you, Dr Nick. I'm not sure how this is going to go down with you, but this week is the anniversary of the death of British comedian Benny Hill, who Caro and I have a bit of a soft spot for, I have to say. Benny Hill died 28 years ago. Interestingly, he was found dead in his living room in the chair where he'd been sitting for several, several days before he was discovered. But, Nick, I wondered, are you a Benny Hill fan? I'd have to disappoint you, Corrie, and say no. I found him a bit sort of slapstick and corny. And I was much more impressed by another English comedian who died last week, which is Tim Brooke Taylor. Yes. And uh, my favourites of English comedians were all of the Cambridge foot, Footlights guys. And I just loved the goodies, which I didn't watch as a child, but I watched it with all my own children. And I loved the goodies. And, of course, John Cleese and Peter Cook. I think those comedians, Stephen Fry, have so much more subtlety than um, Benny Hill ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, why am I not surprised? Poor old Benny. Uh, Corrie, what's this week's favourite Jacinda Ardern moment for you? Well, there have been a couple, Caro. She uh, said that she was going to take a 20% pay cut, and I thought that was great leadership. And also, Caro, she's asked the people of New Zealand to keep a diary. And this is not just for mindfulness matters. This is actually a really good health idea in terms of where we're at at the moment with coronavirus. So she has asked New Zealanders to keep a diary of their daily activity, who you meet, where you go. And in particular, if it go, if along the track you are diagnosed with coronavirus and then the health officials investigate, well, who did you meet and what did you do? You try and think about what you did two or three weeks ago, the interconnection you might have had with people. But if you have it written down, doesn't that make sense? Isn't that a sensible idea? I just thought it was so logical. It was scary. Now, my question to you, Caro, Jessica Lang, one of our favourite actresses, it's her birthday this week. What's your favourite Jessica movie? Oh, I love Jessica Lang. She sort of had a, a very, it was a short-lived but brilliant time in the spotlight. And I know you're a Tootsie fan and it's one of your favourite movies and I love doing that as a romantic lead, but I'd have to say her portrayal of the troubled actress Frances Farmer 
should have won the Oscar in 1982. Yes, she, she was did. robbed. That's right. Um, but she didn't win it. She was nominated, didn't win it. But her, I think the movie was called Francis. That would definitely be my favourite. Now, Nick, um, I won't ask you about keeping a diary. My sources tell me there's a plot under underway for you to overthrow Corrie in her role as secretary of the History Club. Is this true, Nick? Well, the History Club is a group of about 14 of us that Corrie founded uh, about 10 years ago. And I, all I'd like to say, Carol, is I very much respect and love Corrie as the founder and leader. And she marshals all her difficult and opinionated charges in a very relaxed but firm way. And I would never even dream of wanting to replace her. And I think her anxiety about this is more a sign of her own incipient paranoia than anything to do with reality, is all I could say. Nick, it's hilarious. You know, all these years later, really, that's your public line, isn't it? But you continue to send me undermining texts and messages saying, do you think it's a good idea that you send the group a message about this or that? Really? I, I do think you want to be the leader. I declared that I have no ambition. Like, what more could I say? Like, Tony, Tony Hurtle, all of these politicians, what could I say? Um, Nick, I have a question for you. Would you rather be secretary of the History Club or back playing golf? I want to play golf. And I think that's one of the things I'm, I can't understand why that stopped. Out in the middle of nowhere with no one. Anyway, it's probably a minor issue, but um, I would like to play golf again. I think the Premier sort of hinted the other day that it might be back soon, Nick. That'd be exciting. Middle England had a lovely description of playing golf by the girl Sophie, whose husband took her out to golf one day. And no one ever writes about golf, but it was a very good little five-page vignette about the beauty of playing golf, so I enjoyed that. No one ever writes about golf. My husband would have a library of books about golf and not just how to improve your swing or autobiographies, but books about different courses and books about stories from the golf course? I'm in, in a novel where they talk about people playing golf. I'm not talking about that kind of book. Yeah, sure, there are lots specifically on golf. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I hear you. Now, Corrie, you have a current recurring... Oh, we're talking about our dreams. This is a bad sign. You have a current recurring dream. What is it? Well, I, well, I, I did want to mention this a couple of weeks ago, but I thought I might save it for when Dr Nick joins us. Nick, I have a recurring, I have a lot, a lot of recurring dreams, but the one I'm having at the moment is that I can do the splits. Wow. Does this, does this make me, I see myself self as somewhat invincible during the coronavirus? I'm doing yoga online so much. I think it could be the yoga would be the most obvious practical thing. Freud would have a bit to say about that, I think. <laughs> Legs, I mean, I don't know what. I tell you what, Carol, our friend Betsy, came over for, I'll never forget this as long as I live, came over for a lunch party a few years ago and I don't know how many glasses of wine we'd all had, but she got up and promptly did the splits. And she told us that when she was a young girl living in Nashville, Tennessee, she was a cheerleader and they were all taught how to do the splits. Well, it's pretty amazing when you see something, somebody just over the age of 40, as I think Betsy was then, uh, suddenly get up from your dining room table and do it on the floor. I think that's out of Nick's pay grade to be analysing your dreams about doing the splits. <laughs> hey, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's been my pleasure. It was fun. I enjoyed being here. It was good. It's been lovely to have you on. Um, it's time to go, though, sadly. Please tune in later this week for our special GLT episode to drop. Thank you, apart from thanking Nick, 
We want to thank Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. It's powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Please call 131 806 for Real Aussie Energy. Thanks for your feedback and comments. Please join us on social media as we've just loved all your feedback via the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. You can follow us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter using the handle at Don't Shoot Pod. And you can email us, feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Keep listening, as I said, for our GLT bonus app dropping Saturday morning. Thank you, Miss Jane and Corrie. Don't shoot the messenger, Nick and Caro. Thanks for listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin. Thanks to Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy, Call 131 806 for real Aussie energy.